It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Good morning. David, we're finally, after nine years of doing this program, going to talk about something I actually know about. Baseball. Oh, I thought you were going to say losing <laughs> at baseball. Don't you play baseball? I do. Yes, yes, and that's and you're not you're not wrong. And we have the man of the hour to join us on that Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello. Well, today's show is a little respite from the torments of the world that we have so many guests on. So, have an open mind, listeners. This is more about sports and its impact on life in many ways. But before we get to that, Ralph, let's talk a little bit about a great activist who just passed away this week, Harry Belafonte. Talk about him. Harry Belafonte was a great entertainer and a great social activist for justice, civil rights, African-Americans. He grew up in the Caribbean, and he never faltered. He never was co-opted. He never put ambition before his candid statements again and again on the violations of civil rights of people who were powerless. I remember when he came to fame so many years ago, I would hum his Calypso songs going back and forth to my classes at law school. He was in sensation in introducing Caribbean music, but then he went into great serious areas of conflict and he used his fame as an entertainer to help a lot of other civic activists who couldn't get media. So we're going to miss him badly. Harry Belafonte. Thank you for that, Ralph. And before we get to our intro here, we're going to have another live taping coming up on Monday, May 1st. To mark this year's Law Day, we'll be partnering with the American Museum of Tort Law to bring you a conversation with distinguished trial attorney and law professor Shane Inspector, who we've had on the program before. Just go to ralphnaderradiohour.com to sign up to be in our live Zoom audience. It's on a Monday, not Wednesday, when we usually tape, Monday, May 1st, 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 9.30 Pacific. A short course in tort law, listeners, from a master practitioner and educator, Shane Inspector, from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Today, the topic is sports, specifically baseball. And a month into the new season, we are delighted to welcome the national baseball writer for the New York Times, Tyler Kepner. His latest book is The Grandest Stage, A History of the World Series. It's one of those books that I predict will be an instant classic of the genre. Kepner delves into the drama, the pressure, the unlikely heroes, the unfortunate goats, and gets inside the heads of the athletes who have been lucky enough to perform on this grandest of stages. We will also talk to him about some of the broader issues of the sports world that he covers, like corporate sponsorship, stadium building, and gambling. And to that end, we have also invited Ken Reed back to the program to participate in the conversation with Tyler. Regular listeners know that Ken Reed, a doctor and passionate sports fan, is also the director of League of Fans, the group founded by Ralph that fights for the higher principles of justice, fair play, equal opportunity, and civil rights in sports, while also encouraging safety and civic responsibility. Ken is also the author of How We Can Save Sports, a game plan, which now has been updated since it was first published eight years ago. As always, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber, and Ralph will have some choice words about Bernie Sanders' endorsement of Joe Biden running for president again. But first, 
Let's talk sports. David? Tyler Kepner is national baseball writer for the New York Times, where he has covered every World Series game of the last two decades. He's not just a sports reporter, he's a sports historian. He is the author of K, A History of Baseball in 10 Pitches, and The Grandest Stage, A History of the World Series. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Tyler Kepner. Thanks for having me. Welcome indeed, Tyler. Well, it's a real pleasure. I've spent so much time reading your wonderful articles on baseball, which is your beat. And your role as a historian is well established now. I've got your history of the World Series in my hands right now. And I wanted to see how you dealt with that story of Babe Ruth in the 1932 World Series with the Chicago Cubs when he allegedly pointed to the center field stands before he hit a whole mum off the well-regarded Charlie Root pitcher. And sure enough, you exposed it for a fable, which was good promotion as a fable for the Yankees. But what was actually happened was he held up his two fingers, if I remember it right, and what he held up was that he had two strikes on him. And that's the way his opponent, Charlie Root, interpreted it. And instead, the fable was that he pointed to the center field stands and then hit a home run over the center field fence. And what Charlie Root said later was quite compelling. He said to the New York World Telegram in 1956, when he was coaching for the Milwaukee Braves, quote, if Ruth had pointed to the stands, I'd have knocked him on his fanny with the next pitch, believe me. He just held up two fingers to show there were only two strikes and he still had one coming, end quote. So let me come to the present time, Tyler. I could reminisce for a long time about Mel Allen, the announcer, and when I became a Yankee fan as a little boy after I heard that Mickey Owen dropped the third strike in the World Series between the Dodgers and the Yankees, and the Yankees came back to win the game and the series, I might add. But I want to talk about the Yankees now. And one question we had, Ken and I sent a very serious letter to the physician of the Yankees because the injuries were unbelievable. And we just couldn't understand why there were so many injuries in the Yankees. This was a couple of years ago when they had better helmets, when they had gloves, when they had better trainers than the old days, but when they had padded the walls in the outfield. So if they crashed into them as an outfielder, they wouldn't get as injured. And yet they had all these injuries. So it was a very serious letter and they never acknowledged it and they never responded to it. How do you interpret all these injuries, Tyler? Well, you know, that, that's been a big question in the baseball industry for a while now. You know, why when the athletes are so well conditioned and when they have so much awareness of injuries and so many facilities for them, you know, why guys get hurt so much? And I, and I think part of it is that awareness. Part of it is that the way they can detect and measure any little bit of discomfort and they try to account for that, you know, and, and sit a guy down or back him off a little bit in hopes of keeping him healthier long-term. Now it doesn't always work, of course, but you know, a lot of times they just, they don't want to take any chances. So they'll, they'll put a guy on the injured list for a little while. And, uh, you know, whereas in the, in the past, you know, guys might've pitched through something or played through something or not really known that they were hurt or didn't want to speak up. Maybe they didn't have guaranteed contracts as much or whatever. 
But I think now there's just such a focus on risk management and risk aversion that if there's any risk at all in, in terms of playing somebody when he's not, you know, close enough to 100%, they're going to uh, be cautious and sit him out. I really think that's what it is. I think, you know, back in the day, you probably had as many injuries, but maybe there were shortened careers because of it. And we don't really know what those careers would have looked like because they never got too far off the ground because of injuries. So it's a complicated answer. And I think it goes beyond just the fact that, you know, guys are in better shape now. So why do they get hurt? Is there anything to their muscling up? They have bulging biceps now like Stanton, and that increases the possibility of ligament or tendon injuries? It could be in some cases, yeah. I mean, in some cases, I'm sure, you know, having a great physique will keep guys healthier or, or make them more productive than they would have otherwise. But in some cases, it does seem like certain guys' bodies just aren't quite equipped for the six-month grind plus spring training plus postseason, you know, and 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 Stanton, I know, you know, works really hard and, and really wants to be out there and, and is in incredible shape, but something always happens, it seems, and he's very frustrated by it, but it may just be something with, yeah, the, the makeup of his body. I, you know, I don't know that he could change it much to, I'm not qualified to say if he could change it, but it certainly worked for him to give him a great career and a great living, but it just, it's been hard for him to stay on the field. So that's the thing, you know, that, that older generations of players used to say up until the eighties or so was that, you know, they would tell you to stay out of the weight room in the off season. They didn't want you to get too muscular, too coiled, too bulky. They were worried that you would lose the flexibility that you would need for that, that long grind of a season. So there probably is something to that, but they have strength yeah. and training guys to figure it all out. Tyler, let's talk about the game from the fans' perspective. I and a lot of other people happen to listen to the Yankee games on radio. And in the old days, they never had ads except between innings. They just focused on the game. Now they've just gone berserk with ads, and they're not the only team. We did a survey of 30 games in April, early of 2022, when all 30 teams played on April 9th. And we found that the Yankees had more than 50 ads in between plays. So for those of you who are listening, we're talking about baseball now, listeners. Once in a while in this tormented world, we have to have some relief. And for those of you who are listening, when John Sterling calls a home run, it's a home run brought to you by Kia, the auto company. Or it's a call to the bullpen brought to you by Geico. Or the strikeout is brought to you by some other company. And it just kills the spirit of listening to the game. And I'm sure that Sterling is overwhelmed by how many ads he has to insert when there should be commentary about the play. So we sent this report to Robert Manford, the baseball commissioner, as well as to the New York Yankees. We sent a prior similar report in 2012. And they never answered, but Mr. Sandomir, a reporter for the New York Times, wrote it up. This time, we got a letter from Robert Manford, and he basically said, well, you know, we don't have any influence as Major League Baseball on what the teams do with their local radio stations, other than we do police offensive language, but we don't have any influence at all. And that's the business model that makes it all possible. So he sort of punted on that. But as baseball reporters, and the New York Times has 
quite a few baseball reporters. Why haven't you all written about this? I mean, it seems to be newsworthy. And this was new data. And, you know, the fans deserve some attention. We're going to talk later on between you and Ken Reed about the sports from the point of view of players as well as the fans. But what's your take on that? I mean, you know, just talk like a baseball fan. Yeah, I mean, I, I've noticed that on Yankee broadcasts in particular, going back a long time. I don't know if they've increased markedly or whatever, but I just remember listening, you know, in the 90s, they seem to have a lot of ads during the broadcasts. You know, advertising creep has really, you know, gotten more and more pronounced. You know, I've been very vocal more than any other reporter that I've seen about the ads on the uniforms. I'm always the one who asked Rob Manfred about it. I'm always the one who asked, I asked Steve Cohen about it the other day at opening day, why the Mets need a, an ad patch on their jersey. They did change the style of it yesterday. It's a little more in keeping with their color scheme, at least. It's a little scaled down than it was for the first 20 games or so when it was very garish. But that to me, that's a line that I would have drawn. You know, I, I think radio station or a TV station has to balance, you know, what revenue they're going to get from those ads versus how much it will turn off their listeners or their viewers. And if they see that they're not turning off their viewers or listeners or discouraging them from listening, then they'll probably just keep doing it. Tyler, the interesting thing is, as advertisers know, if you cluster too many ads together, you get less response to the ad. And they're so clustered together and they irritate the listener. I don't know why the advertisers keep putting their ads on. I mean, the listeners are really upset when you raise it because it just, you know, constantly distracts from the focus of the game. And Sterling's been around forever and he's got a lot of commentary and he has to go to an ad. Anyway, people who want to get this report can go to leagueoffans.org and you can get the report. It is getting worse compared to our 2012 survey. It's gotten worse for all the teams. Although curiously, although the Yankees have over 50 in-play ads, the Houston Astros in our survey only had 12, and the Kansas City Royals only had six. So there's something different with their business model, obviously, and we'll have to leave it at that. We're going to now go to listeners, some very important issues affecting sports. I've often mentioned that the sports pages should really be called spectator sports pages because they don't deal with intramural, they don't deal with phys ed and schools and so many other issues affecting recreational activity like in the neighborhoods and so forth. So I'm going to bring Ken Reed on here and let's talk first about your findings on physical education and its gradual disappearance in elementary and high school, Ken, and why? Well, it's a sad situation. I mean, the kids have never been less active than today. The childhood obesity epidemic is worse than ever. And it's not all tied to the schools, but part of the responsibility is the schools for dropping physical education, which used to be a daily class. Then it was three times a week. Now it's you're lucky to get one time a week, and a lot of schools don't even require it. In fact, I read recently that in Georgia, they're building some elementary schools now where they don't even have gyms as part of the school. So, you know, today we're left with a situation where only 5% of kids are meeting the 60-minute daily goal for exercise. Over 75% of kids don't even exercise 20 minutes a day. It's video games, it's social media, you know, COVID made things worse, but 
it's a huge problem health-wise. What used to be called adult onset diabetes is now happening in kids 13, 14, 15 years old. Tyler, can you respond to that? Don't you think that is a recurrent newsworthy subject for the sports pages? I mean, sure. I, I, I it doesn't. I mean, I cover. I'm the baseball columnist, so it's not really in my wouldn't be under right. my radar, but. We have plenty of general assignment sports writers who look at lots of different aspects of things from the sports world. So, yeah, maybe it would be something that would interest them, perhaps. That was good because we send it around to all the sports writers. You know, and Robert Lipsight, who is revered as a sports writer, I know you know him, he thinks very highly of Ken's writings. And so does DeFord, before he passed away, a great writer and essayist on sports. Let's go to what Ken has written and others have written about concussions. Now, concussions have been widely reported in the sports pages, but there's a dimension that has not been widely reported, and it involves high school football, too. Ken? Yeah, just as a prelude to that, I mean, every year at League of Fans, we make a list of the top 10 contemporary sports issues. And for the last 10 years, brain trauma, concussions, and CTE has been number one. And for a lot of years, the only media attention the issue got was with the NFLs and a little with the NHL. And we wrote about that too as well. But the scary part to me is, is colleges and even further down high school athletes and youth sports where there's football practices all the time by the hundreds and thousands where there's, there's no medical personnel on the field at the practices or the games. Most coaches aren't aware of all the signs for concussion or brain trauma. And so it's a pretty scary situation, especially when you consider that the human brain is still developing till about age 21 or so. And it's a lot more. But evolved. isn't it worse? You don't have to have a concussion now, just repeated blows to the head that's dealing with this brain trauma later in life. Exactly. Like CTE was associated strictly with concussions for a long time, but the latest research is showing that repetitive subconcussive trauma is just as dangerous. For example, what the linemen do in football where they constantly bang heads, you know, they're not getting concussions, but they're getting damaged all the time. Tyler, I went up to Minnesota to interview Coach Girardi of the St. John's College team because from day one, and he's won more college games in his career than almost anyone else, he had a winning team year after year at St. John's in their league. He would never have in practice the players hit each other. And he said they were less likely to injure themselves or be tired for the Saturday game. And none of the other coaches in the league followed him, but he kept winning and winning. And now Dartmouth College has started saying no hitting in practice. Maybe the Ivy League schools will start. Don't you think this is a, a very important subject? Because high school students are now facing increasing insurance premiums that the insurance companies are levying on the high schools. And there's doubt about the future of most high school football teams because of this. I'd love your reaction on that. Yeah, I mean, I think the Times has, has written more about concussions than probably any other media outlet. I mean, Alan Schwartz years ago was really the one pushing all that reporting. It should have won a Pulitzer, in my opinion. We've written about it just so many times. So I think maybe other places don't as much, but yeah, I mean, we write about all aspects of that issue very often, I, th I think, in my opinion. Maybe we could write about them more in someone else's opinion, but 
Yeah, I, I think any anytime there's a public safety issue, public health issue regarding you know concussions and brain injuries, you know, I think Times has taken that issue very, very seriously. Yeah, I would second that. I, I would I would give kudos to the New York Times on their coverage. I think what's really scary for me though, as parents of youth sport athletes, is seeing that the latest studies are showing that you're getting brain damage without concussions. And so parents might not even know what's going on with their kids. The results of this last study explain why about approximately 20% of athletes with CTE never even suffered a concussion. And that's because of the repetitive subconcussive blows they sustained throughout their career. Another area that Ken has written about and we focused on is the over-commercialization and professionalization of youth and high school sports. You know, the win-at-all-costs mentality of too many adults, coaches, and parents in youth sports. Can you elaborate that, Ken? Yeah, this is a growing problem with all the club sports and AAU travel teams. And, you know, when we all grew up, we probably played with the neighborhood Little League teams. But now, you know, parents are taking kids all over to play on club sports teams. And that creates an income gap. I wrote about it yesterday that there's a huge income gap in terms of sports activities, physical activity in general between lower income families and higher income families that lower income families just can't afford to keep up with the Joneses, if you will, and playing all these elite showcase tournaments and club teams, et cetera. The other recent study that I wrote about recently was that there's a huge referee shortage now because crazy abuse of parents and coaches are driving refs out of the game. And there's 50,000 officials that have left high school ranks now since 2018-19 just because of the abuse from coaches and fans and parents. You think that's something that should be covered? You know, so it's, it's the Lou Lombardi syndrome, I guess, <laughs> Tyler. You've come across that and even in baseball, obviously, not just football and hockey and basketball. What are your takes on those? Well, I think Ken makes some really important points there, you know, and you see it now. I don't know if it's so much win at all costs, but certainly in the development of baseball players, so much of it is now geared towards showcases and travel teams, which are very expensive, but also it's more, I think what scouts and, and teams are seeing is more and more of these amateur players are playing to the, the radar gun or playing to the, the metrics of you know exit velocity or you know how hard they hit the ball or how much they spin it versus the way to actually play the game you know the instincts needed to play the game and the things you need to do to win those are are, are not as ingrained maybe in young players as they once were because they know that to attract scouts they need to show the measurables like the spin rate velocity and exit velocity and all stuff so so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of that, like, over-parenting, over-coaching and stuff that there always has been. But I think the biggest issue in that regard for baseball now is that it just costs so much for kids to play it that it becomes, in this country, very much a rich person's sport. And baseball's aware of that, and they have a lot of programs that they're trying to attack that problem. But it's still fundamentally an expensive sport. And now there's this added layer of you can't just like star for your high school team and then be seen and be drafted. You got to do all these other programs too. I didn't know this until recently, it was until Ken pointed this out, that the physical, mental, and the emotional harm that comes when kids are pushed to specialize in a single sport at an early age, like middle school, and then the rest of the kids become spectators to see these stalwart young athletes perform, not just high school and college. You want to talk about that, Ken? 
Well, yeah, it's it's the whole trend to elitism or over commercialization or professionalization of youth sports. Another factor is intramural programs that schools used to have for kids that didn't want to play varsity sports or weren't good enough. They could still have an opportunity to compete and play. And the intramural programs have gone the way of the dinosaurs in a similar manner as PE classes. And with, you know, some schools I read recently are dropping middle school sports are, are going away, freshman sports. Some schools are even dropping JV programs in order to put more money and focus on the handful of kids that are good enough athletes to play varsity sports. So if we think sports have merit and are good physically, mentally, and emotionally, which the research shows it can be if done right, we should be trying to find ways to get more kids participating instead of fewer, and the trends are going in the wrong direction. And of course, it improves academic performance too when kids do physical exercise. Exactly. Uh, it's almost a, a straight correlation between fitness levels and academic performance, according to the research. And in this era of mental health problems with young students and athletes, daily physical exercise and sports participation is also beneficial for emotional health. You know, you might be interested in knowing this, Tyler. Ken and I visited ESPN about four years ago. He came from Denver to visit our tort museum, the only tort museum in the world. And we went over to Bristol and met with the investigative corps. There were about four or five around the table. And they were very interested in all of these things and other issues, too. And it never happened. I think the unit has either shrunken or disbanded. And it raises a larger question of this. When I started advocating for consumers, the business pages hardly ever reference consumers. It's like the marketplace didn't include consumers. It was all business news, seller side news, so to speak. And we broke some ground. The New York Times did a great job covering the auto safety battles. And now, even though there's a lot to be desired, the business reporting does include consumer concerns, abuses, credit abuses, safety, health. There are now consumer columnists in newspapers like Michelle Singletary of the Washington Post. There used to be consumer reporters on TV, local news. That sort of dried up, unfortunately. But in the sports media, there's remarkably little on the plight of consumers, fans, taxpayers. So let's go to the taxpayer stadium. I've been really fighting against this, in part because if they're going to spend money, they should develop neighborhood recreational facilities, which are often non-existent in cities or deteriorating for young, middle-aged, and older people to enjoy sports as they can define it and exercise. Instead, they fund these giant arenas owned by billionaire owners. So the latest one is Governor Hochul's announcement, and it was hardly subjected to any legislative review, that she was going to subsidize the Buffalo Bills new stadium because the Bills are threatening to leave Buffalo. That's the extortion that these teams do. The owners of the Buffalo Bills are worth $5.8 billion, according to Forbes. And yet they got the equivalent of $1.2 billion if you include maintenance for this new stadium. The argument is always it increases jobs, but, you know, when, when there are only 10 games, two ex exhibition and eight play, you're not creating many jobs per year. That's a hoax that's been exposed by a lot of sports economists at universities. Ken, explain briefly your frustration on this issue, and it doesn't seem to be an investigative trail. The Times and other papers will report 
the Bill Stadium issue. But there's a lot more to investigate behind the scenes, including how they're dealing with the naming rights, which I think should all be called, all these stadiums should be called taxpayer stadiums. They're funded by taxpayers. What's been your experience, Ken? Well, it's a long-time issue because of the system of sports, professional sports in this country. They're all basically unregulated monopolies. Major League Baseball has antitrust exemption for a long time, and other sports have other things that are similar that allow these franchises to put pressure on the cities to create new stadiums for them. I mean, we're seeing that now in Oakland, where they are probably going to move to Las Vegas, and Tyler probably knows more about this than I do, but... You know, to your point, they're billionaire owners. John Fisher, the owner of the A's, I think is worth like $2 billion, but he wants $500 million or more to build a stadium. And it looks like Vegas is going to do it for him. In a way, that's the way the system works. So if the Pagulas, who are worth $5.8 billion, are getting it, then Fisher says, well, I should get it no matter how rich I am. It's a crazy system, you know, and it's, it's, I think it all goes back to the fact that these leagues are unregulated monopolies and can hold cities hostage. What's your reaction to that, Tyler? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen in, in baseball, there's only been one franchise to actually move since 1972. That was the Montreal Expos to Washington. So all the extortion threats, I guess, work because these cities do tend to get new stadiums. You know, the A's have tried for many, many years to build all over the place in the Bay Area, and it just has never worked for them. And yeah, I think it's certainly uh, a shame and borderline uh, disgraceful that you have some owners who are just billionaires and, and, and don't want to put enough of their own money into these projects. If there's money out there to be had from public handouts, they're going to take it. And so it's one of these things in, in pro sports. I'm sure it's, it's, I mean, I know it's been covered a lot. It's just kind of the way the way things are now. I pretty much stick to the you know, my area is is the players themselves and the, the teams and the sports and how the sports are managed and, and the competition and how the teams are put together and all that. And some of that obviously has to do with revenues. But, you know, a lot of times these owners really have the revenues. It's just a matter of, a matter of how much they want to spend on their payrolls. We've been talking with Tyler Kepner, the star baseball reporter for The New York Times, author of the new book, The Grandest Stage, A History of the World Series. And his prior book, which was a bestseller, called K, A History of Baseball in Ten Pitches. And we're speaking with Ken Reed, who has been a varsity player and a coach and worked in the marketing area before he wanted to talk about the dark side of sports and what can be done about it. And that's his book that's out called How We Can Save Sports, a Game Plan, that I was fortunate to write the introduction to. And he is our policy director for LeagueOfFans.org, and you can go to LeagueOfFans.org to get more information. you got to indulge me in the Yankees on this. The last World Series the Yankees were in was 2009. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. Right. And I don't think the sports press has been adequately critical of Brian Cashman. In fact, they've been almost laudatory. And I think over the years, he's made a lot of mistakes in terms of the players he's recruited or the players he sold, a lot of mistakes. Why is the press so uncritical of Brian Cashman? He's well-named. He's had the biggest hoard of cash you can imagine. The New York Yankees is the number one valuation team in Major League Baseball, and they've had plenty of money. And yet it goes year after year, and it's getting embarrassing. I mean, they're getting 
whipped by the Minnesota Twins, the Miami players, you know, never mind Tampa Bay. And they don't look good this year either. The bottom half of their order is fairly weak. Can you give your take? I mean, I've never seen such patsy questions. Then the press asks managers after the game. I mean, it's almost embarrassing. They talk to a player. How did you feel when you hit that home run? There's no strategic or tactical questioning at all. I would disagree with that. I mean, you know, I think that's the cliche, you know, perception that all the media asks is how does it feel to do X, Y, Z? It's not, I don't hear that question. I hardly ever hear that question personally. Maybe you do. I, I don't hear it. How do you feel about this? Uh, you know, how do you feel about okay. hitting this run? I don't hear that. And as far as the Yankees, I mean, look, the Astros have been the dominant team now for a long time and some teams got to be number two and the Astros have beaten the Yankees in the 2015 wildcard game and then in the 2017 LCS and then the 2019 LCS and the 2022 LCS. So like the Yankees have gotten there the playoffs six years in a row. They've won. I could look it up easily. Probably the most games in the American league they've won since their last got to the world series. They lost in the LCS in 2010. They lost in 2012. They lost, as I said, those other three times the Astros. So they've given themselves a lot of chances, and generally something will break through. I mean, the Phillies last year, the Phillies had not made the World Series since 2009, and they were mostly terrible since 2011. But they got the last wild card spot last year, and they got hot at the right time. Does that mean the Phillies have been better than the Yankees all this time? No, but they got hot last year, and they ran, you know, right up to game six of the World Series. So that was great, but the Yankees just haven't had that, whether it's luck or design, it's both, I think. You know, I think they strike out too much when it comes to big games in the postseason, which makes them vulnerable to the great kind of pitching that you'll see in October, but they get there, and last year they were on a historic pace until Aaron Judge really just dragged them into the playoffs when the rest of the team got injured or fell apart in the second half. I mean, I liked Cashman's moves last year at the deadline. I really did. I really thought he had put the Yankees in a great position for the playoffs, but then I don't think you can hang it on Cashman that Andrew Benatendi got hurt and Efros got hurt. You probably can hang it on him that Montas got hurt because he was already hurt. Bader really came on in the playoffs and he was great. So, you know, it's complicated. I mean, plenty of teams with lots of money don't do as well as the Yankees. And some teams do. Some teams do better. The Dodgers generally have been better than the Yankees, and they have a lot of money. But most teams would take those, take their chances with, you know, the amount of wins the Yankees get and the amount of playoff runs they have that one of those years they break through. Well, by the way, just a simple question. Who do you think the two or three best baseball players in the major leagues are right now? Shohei Otani is the best baseball player in the world. That's really clear. I still think Mike Trout is way up there. Mookie Betts can do it all. So those are the first three who come to mind. I mean, Ronald Acuna, Trey Turner. There's a lot of Manny Machado, Bryce Harper. There's a lot of great players. But the first couple that come to mind are still Otani and, and Trout and then Mookie Betts for me. What's your take, Tyler, on the gambling connections that universities now are making with uh, gambling companies? I know the Times has written about that. And also... The differential monetary awards now that have been given, say, to college basketball players where a few stars make a lot of money and the rest of the team makes nothing. Yeah, I mean, the college sports is not my beat, but I know what I've, I've read, just probably the same as you. 
I think how it's intertwined with colleges and these gambling sites, these apps is terrible because they, you know, the colleges are some of the colleges, not all, but some colleges who who partner up with DraftKings or whatever the companies are, you know, they're encouraging kids at a impression of still impressionable age, you know, they're adults technically, but to get involved in in gambling, they're enticing them to do that and they have financial incentive to do that. And we all know that gambling can be an addiction and, you know, parents pay enough for, for college, let alone, you know, having their kids run up some gambling debts. So yeah, certainly that's a, that's a problem on the college campuses and, and, and baseball and other sports, you know, have, have gotten tied up, you know, with some of these companies as gambling has become legalized in many places, they say they want to have it in-house so they can regulate it. But obviously there's a lot of, a lot of issues there where it could be prone to corruption and it's not a good look for universities or teams. The first shoe has dropped. The National Football League has just suspended five NFL players, three for the season and two for some games because they were caught gambling. So it's already begun. Steve, can you get in here before Tyler has to leave? Yeah, very quickly, Tyler. The title of your book is The Grandest Stage. Why do you think baseball and the World Series in particular is the grandest stage? Well, it, it, historically, it, it's always it always has been. Certainly, it's the apex of the season, the thing that every fan ultimately looks forward to. You know, the World Series as an event has had some some challenges. Certainly, the, uh, the Super Bowl has overtaken it in terms of eyeballs, but that's just one game. I mean, the World Series is a, a week-long event. It's always fascinating to me, the history behind it, the way it's managed within the games, the way certain players respond to that spotlight, the way momentum can turn so quickly. We saw last year, Philadelphia's up two games to one and at home, and then all of a sudden, Houston takes it back with a no-hitter in game four, and then a close win in game five. They get home and they win it all. So I love the back and forth of the way those series go. Wish they weren't all so late at night, but I love that on the East Coast, but I do love that, you know, baseball's finally addressed some of that with the rule changes and and getting the games to go at a much brisker pace. So hopefully that'll... Uh, allow some some kids maybe in the East Coast to watch to the ninth inning a little more. But yeah, thanks, Steve. It, it was a fun project to work on. And yeah, the World Series, I've always been really attentive to it uh, ever since I was a little guy. Well, I love how you talk about the psychology of the players who play the games, the ones who are the goats or the ones who are the heroes, the unlikely heroes, the quirks of the game. I mean, that can you just relate before you go one more story about something that stands out for you as far as a player dealing with either great success or great failure in the World Series? Yeah, for me, it was important to talk to Mike Schmidt for the book. And, and he was great because, you know, Schmidt's the greatest third baseman of all time. One of the best players ever was the big star of the team I grew up rooting for, the Phillies. And, you know, Schmidt was the MVP of their first World Series in 1980, first championship. And then three years later, all he could manage was one hit. He was one for 20. And uh, with a broken bat single, that was the first game, World Series game I ever went to in 1983. And Schmidt was great talking about how locked in he was in 1980 and and how he was even able to bunt here and there. Imagine that, a big slugger bunting and, and how that ended up helping him later in the series. The threat of the bunt had George Brett playing in and Schmidt was able to smash a, a key single past him. But then by 1983, same stage of his career, same guy, theoretically, you know, should be even more confident. He had just come off a great LCS. He was one for 20 and he could, he was pressing and, and you could just see it in his at-bats and the boos, you know, were, were surfacing, you know, and he talked about just being in his own head and, and, and how, you know, how important it is to try not to be 
you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or, or Michael Jordan, you know, they can't pass you the ball whenever they want. It's baseball. You got to wait your turn. You got to, you know, accept that your teammates have their part to play too and, and not just put it all too much on yourself. And it just showed me that really, you know, those are some lessons that even the all-time greats have to deal with. And past success is, is no guarantee of future results, even for those who have done it. So that was really cool. And to talk to Schmidt and Jim Palmer and Dennis Eckersley and, you know, several Hall of Famers, Joe Torrey, uh, you know, Cal Ripken and you know, guys like that, Reggie Jackson was really, a, you know, a, a thrill for the, for the research as well as talking to some of the unsung heroes too. So Tyler, is your new book, The Grandest Stage in audio yet? Yes, it's audio. Yep. I recorded the audio for it last August. So it's out there in audiobook form as well. Thank you very much, Tyler. We've been speaking with Tyler Kepner. His latest book is A History of the World Series. It's called The Grandest Stage, One Story After Another. Very intriguing. He has the reporter's skill of nonfiction accuracy with the novelist's skill of making his stories irresistible to read. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks for having me on. We've been speaking with Tyler Kempner. We will link to his book, The Grandest Stage, at ralphnaderradiohour.com. One thing I was going to throw out there before I left is in the part of the book I read, Scott Boris, the super agent, was pushing a way for the World Series to get some of its fame back and catch up with the Super Bowl. Boris has pushed for a long time about putting the World Series on at a neutral site and making it a week-long festival and you know, having sponsors and corporations there like the Super Bowl does. And I thought that was a pretty intriguing idea to, to make World Series all games at one site that could just be the center of the sports universe for a while. What do you think about that, Ralph? That would be very good. He would, I think, approve of that because for young people, the World Series isn't anywhere near as much of an event as it was a few decades ago. And one way is to speed up the game and the other is to do things like you just described. The NFL really knows how to boost interest. They are public relations geniuses for professional football, but baseball doesn't seem to have to be able to do that because it's a more tactical and strategic game in many ways than football. And that tends to bore young people. So they've got to think their way through this. By the way, Steve, I heard that exact question. How does it feel hitting that home run? You know, he took umbrage at that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a, a lot of times, I would say, Ralph, after the games, that's usually yeah. what happens. But there, there are usually pregame shows that get more into the strategic event of it. It's after, immediately after, when they're trying to capture these players at the end of games that you have your sideline yeah. reporters saying that. But... They don't Some ever second-guess the managers. They don't second-guess managers. Look at the way he handled Cashman. Cashman's a disaster. He's got the richest team in baseball. It doesn't matter how many times they're in the playoff. They haven't won the World Series since 2009. But Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, said very famously, once you get into the playoffs, it is a crapshoot. And the goal is to get to the playoffs because it's like he yeah. said of the Phillies last year. A team gets hot. There's a, an injury. You really can't look at the result as much as you can look at the fact that the Yankees or my team, the Cleveland Guardians, they have won more games. Than the Ameri They're only second to the Yankees in games they've won in the World Series. And sometimes right. they don't even make the playoffs. So the I'm, modern I'm just, game I'm just, the playoffs I'm not is not as result. You can't take that result because once you get into that 
you can have a team that just barely made it and somehow they get hot at the right time. So yeah, it's I, because they have extended playoffs where the old days you won the American league, you went to the world series. Now you got to go through three out of five or four out of seven. And the risk is much greater that a team gets hot for a few games and knocks you off. But still, even considering all that, look at how the Astros have taken the Yankees to the cleaners year after year after year. Yes, and I'm trying very hard to care about the Yankees, as you say this, Ralph. <laughs> yeah, how about me? I'm in Denver. The, the Colorado point. Rockies. Colorado Rockies, yes. The 30 years, we haven't even won the division once. Yes, it's not the fight <laughs> of the Yankees is not at the top of my list, Mr. Yankee. Um, the, I want Hannah to jump in here because Hannah is not necessarily a baseball fan, but she is a sports aficionado. So, Hannah? Briefly on the topic at hand, one of the things I found really interesting about Tyler's book is he he briefly goes through some of the droughts, the championship droughts, that it's actually pretty common in the past 20 years for teams to break these 20, 30, 40, 50 year World Series droughts. And so I'm sure because it's your team, Ralph, it feels like the Yankees are failing you. But I found that so interesting that it actually, that they're one of the most kind of thrilling things is for a team to have a, a streak of disappointment and then break that. So they might actually, you know, just be building you up to an incredible yeah. catharsis in the next couple of years when you win again. Ralph, you're complaining about 2009. I'm from Cleveland. Try 1948. Lou Boudreau. <laughs> That's right. Lou Boudreau. That sense Lou Boudreau and Satchel Paige have the Cleveland franchise won the World Series. And he talks a lot about in his book, the 2016 World Series, where the Cubs had this drought from 1908. And so you had a, cl a club from 1908 and a club hasn't been won the World Series since 1948. One of those curses was going to be broken. And unfortunately, it was broken by the Cubs and not my team. And part of that was just a freaky thing where there was a rain delay that where the Cubs were able to kind of regroup after the Indians at the time they were called, tied the game on a three-run homer, in the, I think, in the seventh or eighth inning. So Yeah, but the Guardians, formerly the Cleveland Indians, always have a 10th player on the field. It's called birds. It, it's, yeah, birds, midges, midges, insects, I think is what you're referring to. There. Oh, insects, yeah, right. right. Yeah, there are midges that come <laughs> off, off, off of Lake Erie. Of Lake Erie. <laughs> yes, that, that messed up Jabba Chamberlain in the 2007 playoffs. So uh, yeah, that, that, that's one of our best memories. I have a very impassioned counterpoint to the suggestion of turning the World Series into a week-long festival similar to the Super Bowl. Yeah. I actually would argue that part of what keeps, it's part of having it, the, the games and the series played on home turf for each team rather than a neutral ground you know, you have the hometown celebrations when the team wins and you have the community that comes every week to these games on the hometown fields get to take part in the series as well. And I think that kind of helps kind of maintain some of that community spirit, you know, of it being America's I, pastime. I, I think you're right, Hannah, because baseball's always been a regional game. It's always had, you know, every team has its own, it's more consolidated now, but they have their own markets. 
and those markets dictate how much money they have to spend. That's why the Yankees have so much money because it's a huge market. Same with the Dodgers. And the Yankees have their own network. Teams like the Guardians, the smaller market teams, have to sort of share in the revenue. That's this the fascinating thing to me about sports in general is you have all these very wealthy capitalist owners in the most socialist situation ever, always complaining about leveling the playing field, you know, fighting for revenue sharing. Financial fair play rules. In real life. I'm sorry, Hannah, what? Financial fair play rules. I mean, that's to bring it to, to like the corporate malfeasance arena. When you look at the Super Bowl or the World Cup, which would be, you know, kind of an analog to the World Series being a week-long event in one location, when you look at the corruption and you look at all the criticism that comes with these centralized, consolidated, mega sporting events, I hadn't really thought about it before this discussion, but maybe that's part of why that we don't see as, or at least I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but like we don't see that same type of criticism levied against Major League Baseball because they don't have that opportunity for a few really powerful rich men to just screw mm -hmm. everyone else over because they hold the keys to the kingdom. Hannah, this is Ken again. I, from a nostalgic fan perspective, I agree with you. I like how the home team gets the shot to host these events, but I temporarily had my old marketing hat on there and we were talking about ways that the World Series could be boosted in prestige closer to the Super Bowl. And I, I think just from a pure marketing perspective, that it would be such a monster event for a week-long event. But otherwise, with my baseball hat on, I agree with you. So Ken, we're still talking about sports. Let's talk about the update of your book, How We Can Save Sports, a Game Plan. Tell us about what's been updated. Well, thank you. It's interesting that I got a call out of the blue from an editor at Roman and Littlefield who published my book, How We Can Save Sports, a Game Plan seven or eight years ago now. And this lady was a new sports editor at Roman and Littlefield and was going through their collection and came across my book and said, you know, these issues are as important or more important today than they were when this came out. Said we got to get this book reissued and updated and put out again. So she called me, we talked about it. I wrote a new introduction, updated some sections and updated the resource sections for people who want to be sports reformers in the back which I call citizenship through sports activism. It's ways that anyone out there can get involved with the local Little League or on any issue that they're passionate about and try to improve the sports experience for all stakeholders. So it's, it's in a paperback version now. The original was a hard copy and it's updated with some new research, et cetera. And out in paperback now, came out a couple months ago. And I might add, there are very, very few books like this that look at the dark side of sports, professional, amateur, football, basketball, hockey, baseball, high school, middle school, college, and look at the solutions, how we can make sports have less of a dark side, less of a win at any cost, or be so profit-oriented, and give millions of people an opportunity to have adequate recreational facilities in their neighborhoods and communities, and to revive physical education time in our elementary and high schools with all the health advantages of that and with all the improvements in academic performance that studies have demonstrated as the link between physical exercise and their schoolwork. So it's, we want to thank Ken Reed for doing all this. 
It's interesting, Ralph, that, you know, some people ask me, why do you hate sports or why are you so angry about sports? And ironically, I'm probably one of the most passionate people there are about sports. But I think if you love sports, you have to be angry at some of these issues that we talk about. And I always go back to a RFK, Robert F. Kennedy quote that I love, the sharpest criticism often goes hand in hand with the deepest idealism and love of country. And I think that applies to me with sports. And, and that's why we do what we do at League of Fans is just working to try to make sports better for all stakeholders. And every library needs this book, listeners, because they don't have a book like this. It's called How We Can Save Sports, A Game Plan by Ken Reed. I wrote the foreword. Give it as a gift to your local library, high school, community library, college library, and to whoever you want to get more physically exercising whether it's a relative, co-worker, neighbor, or friend. It's a book for all seasons. We've been speaking with Ken Reed, Policy Director for League of Fans. We will link to the updated version of his book, How We Can Save Sports, A Game Plan, at ralphnaderradiohour.com. When we come back, Ralph has some choice words about Bernie Sanders' endorsement of Joe Biden's candidacy for 2024. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, April 28, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. A top lobbying group for hospitals has given former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi an award for her, quote, incredible efforts in advancing health care, unquote, after the former House Speaker spent the past four years fulfilling the industry's top legislative priority, namely blocking consideration of Medicare for All or any other major reforms to the insurance-based health care system. While the American Hospital Association says it's dedicated to providing high-quality care to all patients, the lobbying group actually serves the financial interests of its hospital chain members, which profit immensely from the country's private insurance system. That's according to a report in The Lever. The Lever was denied access to the award ceremony at the AHA's annual meeting in downtown Washington. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Me, Steve, David, Ralph, Hannah. Ralph, before we go, President Biden just announced that he will be running again for president in 2024 officially. And uh, you had some some thoughts about Bernie Sanders endorsing him. I think it was a strategic mistake. He endorsed him without any conditions. He didn't get any commitments from Joe Biden for his endorsement. And because of his leadership role among progressive politicians, he's undermined progressive legislators from holding out and pulling Biden and the corporate Democrats more into progressive territory. I was shocked by his early endorsement and receiving nothing in return. The only explanation is that Bernie Sanders fears fascism more than he fears Democratic Party corporatism. And except for the civil liberty, civil rights aspect of it, which is very important, corporatism and fascism overlap. And it's shameful, I think, that he pulled the rug out from under his colleagues who were trying to pull the Democratic Party toward progressive policies like single payer that he has championed, living wage, cracking down on corporate crime, revising the tax system, reducing the impact and range of the empire, adhering to the rule of law and the Constitution by runaway presidents. All these things he's commented about 
taken positions on in the past, and he's thrown them over the side with his unilateral endorsement of Joe Biden for re-election in 2024. I want to thank our guests again, Tyler Kempner and Ken Reed, for those of you listening on the radio. That's our show for you podcast listeners. Stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, which includes, in case you haven't heard, with Francesco DeSantis. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to CorporateCrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to TortMuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now. And to order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreaders, Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when our guests will be trial attorney and law professor Shane Inspector. And we'll be taping that episode live on Law Day, Monday, May 1st at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. Go to ralphnaderradiohour.com to sign up to be in our live Zoom audience. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Please try to attend the session with Shane Inspector. The cases that he's won are gripping and they're very telling about what the use of tort law can become on behalf of wrongfully injured people.